Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Sophie Agdami. She is a recovery coach in Australia. She shares her own recovery story from alcohol and shares how a particular parable helped change her whole perspective on recovery and helped her find success, healing, and creating a life that she thrives in. I really enjoyed talking with Sophie, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. All right, everyone, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. My guest today is Sophie Agdami, and she is going to introduce herself. Why, why don't you go ahead, Sophie? We've already been talking a little bit but about what we're going to talk about, and I'm excited about it. But you start introducing yourself. Sure. Hi, Jane. Um, really happy to be here. I'm Sophie. I live about an hour outside of Melbourne, um, just near the Great Ocean Road. So it's morning here. So, yeah, I live here with my dog, Echo. We moved here about just over two years ago from Europe. I grew up in Switzerland um, and then wow. in the UK. And I've got family in LA, Spain, Switzerland, England. So and... all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And I made the move here just over two years ago. Awesome. Great. So let's just jump right in. I want to hear about your story because you're an addiction recovery coach. And I like to hear people's stories of recovery and how they kind of find their way through it. So mm. let's start there. Sure. So my drinking started uh, probably early teens in the UK. It's a very 
cultural thing to start drinking very early or at least be you know around it a lot so that's where it really started for me and it yeah it just became the norm you know school discos or hanging out with friends um it became very normal and I also had a job in a pub which probably helped that career um right so here you are around it all the time and and exactly for you for me, the main thing that happened was it became so normalized. You know, I was surrounded by, especially in my working environment, surrounded by people that were always drinking or they weren't necessarily always drinking, but I was always surrounded by people drinking. So it just was normal, you know, that people were drinking right. at lunchtime and evening or, or in the afternoon. And as I went through university, I actually stayed in that industry of line of work so it was so normal and one of the bars that I worked in uh, when I was at uni you know we closed at one and we would go out at 1am and that was the start of our night and it's a super stressful industry to be in you know very full-on and lots of partying people partying and things like that so it, it becomes a release as well in that sort of environment and I would imagine with with if you're around it, it's there. Everybody's drinking. It's just part of the 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 culture. It's part of what you're doing. It's it's everywhere. Absolutely, yeah. And when my career in that industry sort of started developing, I started managing restaurants, and um, which I absolutely loved. But it's super stressful, and the hours are very long. And my coping mechanism and stress release was to have a drink and actually that then became earlier and earlier you know in the day and and it became my sort of brain's reaction to being able to to cope in those sorts of situations stress and things like that so it just started to progress over time like you noticed it starting getting earlier and earlier in the day even though your day started I guess after your day started at 1 a.m but you're finding yourself drinking more and more yeah and it really sped up quickly as well um when I finished at uni I then worked in in the restaurant so that was more of the day work but you know it started creeping in so we might have a couple of drinks after work and then it slowly progressed into having a drink or two at the beginning of the evening shift if someone offered us one that then progressed into maybe one at lunchtime and then over time it was suddenly quite plausible for someone to say hey should we just have a bloody mary this morning just to kick start you know and and that's where it then started you know getting really out of control and I think for a lot of people that struggle with alcohol, that's kind of the case. It kind of like kind of creeps up. I mean, I think for some other drugs, people are addicted pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. alcohol, it always kind of seems to be that same kind of story where it starts to kind of intrude in your life in more and more ways. Like you said, oh, let's just uh, start the day off with this. Why not? Yeah. And in the restaurant industry and especially alcohol, it's so socially acceptable so it looks it seems or it's perceived as just doing something really fun you know hey do you want a drink yeah sure I'll join you from the other side of course why not yeah this is all great fun but the reality of it underneath the water you know it's it's getting very murky and very very dangerous so that's so let's talk about the murkiness when did you start to notice that the water was murky and 
maybe this Bloody Mary at the beginning of the day is maybe not the best thing. Yeah, it was when those Bloody Marys didn't become a fun option and they became a necessity to kickstart my brain and facing the day. I think that's when I realized, okay, this isn't too cool. Um, But even at that point, because everyone else was doing it too, it was acceptable and normal. And when it was normalized, it became okay in my mind. I did start having sort of blackouts and things like that and not remembering evenings. And people would mention that. But again, it was a bit of a a jokey kind of thing, you know, oh God, do you remember you were hammered last night? And sort of it would get laughed off. Those moments and all those sort of remarks got more serious over time, over the years. And I did actually get out of that industry because I realized it wasn't good for my health. But unfortunately, the alcohol and the addiction had stuck. So, you know. So even though you moved out, you're, you're still like, it's kind of following you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it became something that led me as well, really. It was, it was my coping mechanism. It was what I did, you know, and my brain was then completely connecting that short circuit to the perceived reward of alcohol. So yeah, that's, that's when the addiction was rife. One thing I, you know, that always fascinates me about our human behavior is how this shift starts to change. And and then we start to notice like what was once like, all right, now it starts to become problematic and we start to see it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like that process for you of kind of realizing like maybe this isn't all good. Mm, It was a feeling, it was a sort of almost a feeling of a dull ache, a a sinking feeling that I had inside. I knew there was something that was wrong with the way that I drank versus how other people drank but I wasn't ready to face it. You know, I would I would look, I would watch in absolute awe as someone would just leave half a glass of wine at dinner when I was ready to crack open another bottle. You know, just I could not comprehend that other people. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, You're wasting that yeah. good bottle um, of wine. But in, in yeah. the throngs of it, you know, while it was sort of really speeding up, I probably didn't notice a lot of this stuff either. And it's only even now, you know, I started my recovery journey almost four years ago. And even now I'll start reflecting going, when did it, when did it happen? You know, when was right. that moment? Being able to see, it was something that was more gradual and it was very gradual, um, or maybe I was thinking it was gradual. You know, I think it was much more obvious on the outside, but I was trying to block it out because I wanted to carry on. I, I needed to carry on from a physically, I think my body needed it from at that point. So I didn't want to accept it for a long time. So what was the point where you said, okay, I have to do something. I got to do something different. So there were a few times where I had that feeling and I would think, right, pull myself together, you know, get in the shower, quit, you know, do a month. And I'd do a month and it would be a struggle, but I'd love it. You know, I'd feel great. My skin would be good. I'd be sleeping really well. I'd just be back on track with everything. I'd then get to the end of that month and think, cool, I don't have a problem. You know, people who have a problem can't stop for a month. So inevitably, I'd end up going celebrate, 
<laughs> with <laughs> some drinks at the pub. Um, right. So that cycle did continue for a little while. There were so there were some sort of rock bottoms along the way, and I really did try. I really did try, and and they got progressively worse, and the relapses then got progressively worse in turn. There was one turning point when my older brother actually flew over to come and see me and, and speak to me about it. And wow. it was then when I, I really realized that this was something that wasn't going, it wasn't a bit going unnoticed anyway, but this was really, you know, this is serious, Sophie. We, we've got to talk about this. And that's when I agreed to go to rehab. Right. And that's a big decision, but it sounds like you had someone who reached out to you and maybe pointed out what you didn't want to see. And it sounds like a loving way. Yeah, he did it in a a beautiful way, a very compassionate way. And I must have been also ready as well, because, you know, there were there had been many attempts before that point and I hadn't quite connected with it. But I think at that point I was so exhausted mentally and physically you know, my body really felt exhausted that I just said, okay, let's do this. So I went to rehab in um, in Thailand for about five, five or so weeks. And yeah, it was, it was life-changing. life-changing. Wow. So you really got to see it all. And it's wonderful to hear that, that it's life-changing, that you are actually got a second chance. It was a, a huge amazing shift in everything you know it it allowed me a break from it all also being in Thailand it removed me from my environment which I think was super important at that time because environmentally there were cues just being catapulted at me from every direction you know I just wanted to drink there were triggers everywhere and also so many bad memories of, oh, God, that's where I fell over. Oh, that's where I hit a bottle. Oh, that's the person right. I made a fool out of myself across. So the shame was just unbelievably overwhelming. So right. kind of stepping out of that situation, that environment, and being obviously in a safe space in a rehab, but also in a completely different culture, and everything was hugely you know, beneficial to me. Like it helped you really see things differently, it sounds like. Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into the day-to-day at a rehab. So there was lots of, you know, therapy and also discussion with other people there and for hearing other stories. And right. in time, that made it a lot more realistic that what I was going through was a problem and it needed to be sorted out. So let's talk a little bit about that transformation and you moving through that process and then and then we'll move into what you do now and how you help others. And I know that we had talked earlier at the beginning before we started the interview that there was a parable that you wanted to share. So I want I yes. want to get there too. But let's talk a little bit about your own transformation, that process. Yeah, great. So There were a lot of things involved and, uh, you know, emotionally, mentally, spiritually and physically getting fit. And I saw such huge benefits from those things that uh, and, and after rehab, I also started working with a recovery coach. It was a couple of years later. It was when I was going through a very wobbly time again. And 
I saw the benefits so much of how that person was helping and the things we were putting in place, you know, the goal setting, the shame lifting, all of those sorts of things. And um, that's what really inspired me to get into that line of work myself. I actually had an opportunity uh, when I was in Indonesia almost two years ago now to be a sort of recovery companion for private clients who were in sort of a private one-to-one rehab space. And I loved this chance to help other people in a place that I'd been, you know, that real darkness, being able to be there, hold space for them and work on things that I knew had helped me, you know, um, yoga, just talking, lifting shame, goal setting, all of those things. It was it was a moment where I really felt, wow, I've found my calling in a way. You know, I've really found my sense of purpose to help others, but also to help my own recovery. So it was it was a sort of magical finding, really, for me. Right. And this goes to your website, the wolf you feed, right? Dot com. It yeah. goes to that because I can hear in your language about how you started to switch your focus to, you know, get moving through that shame, moving through all of those feelings that are difficult, where alcohol was the way in which you could mask it, get rid of it, change it, shift it in the moment. So let's let's start to go there, because I I know you want to share this and I'm excited Um, to hear it. So I decided and I'd, you know, I'd done my training, uh, my recovery coaching training and all that sort of stuff. And I thought I really need to think of a name and a sort of, you know, idea behind why I'm doing this, um, a sort of foundation stone. And I didn't really want to call my coaching company after my name because it's not really about me. Right, right. And I was so inspired by this parable. Um, I'll read it to you, actually, if you like, and we can talk yes, about it. Yes, I would it. love to hear it. Okay, great. So I have it here. So an old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and in every other person too. The grandson thought about this for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply applied, the one you feed. one you feed. The one you feed. And to me, there was such a link to recovery and addiction. You know, when we continue, and this relates back to my personal experience, when I was feeding my bad wolf, the relapses would begin or the addiction just continued. And feeding the good wolf, you know, releasing that shame, giving ourselves compassion, love, having connection, all of those things that I mentioned from the parable, that's where our recovery really starts to strengthen and we're able to maintain it. So I thought it was such a relevant parable to have and include in the name. I I love that parable. I think it just, it goes right to, to, to the point and right to what we need to do. 
my question is, how did you start to learn to feed the right wolf, the positive mm. wolf? How did you start to do that? Like, how did that start to happen in your life? That's a great question um, because I had a lot of self-hate, a lot of self-loathing. So those things did not come easily at all, yeah. at all in early recovery. There was a lot of self-doubt, um, low self-esteem, actually rock bottom self-esteem. And um, so it became something that I needed to do on a very, very small scale, doing esteemable things every day, as small as they might be. I spent a chunk of time in Bali after rehab and, and so on to really focus on my recovery. So I had the gift of time to really focus on these things. And actually, it started as something very, very almost extreme but basic. I had a timetable, an hourly timetable for each day and broke the day down into things that I could do that were kind to others, things that helped me in my own physical health, my mental health, my emotional health, my spiritual health. And slowly I, over time, sorry. No, that's okay. No, I was just going to say, I, I love that when you say that, like, you know, you, you took it, you broke it down and you put it into steps and you made it like actionable and doable and that it just starts small. I love that you say that because a lot of I, I think there's like a mythology out there that somehow, and, and I guess sometimes it does happen. We do have some big changes and we just shift, mm. but I think, you know, 99% of the time, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's that making a list and doing these things that are good. Absolutely. And it had to start there because everything else felt overwhelming, you know, to think of the bigger things that started being added in over time you know over months over years was too overwhelming and I would just say yeah. I just can't do it so I'd end up not doing anything so I thought well the best thing to do is do something tiny and celebrate celebrate that tiny thing because I mean you know it's proven the more things that we can celebrate and look back on in our day and see as something as an achievement helps us with the bigger things right. so. and that's like feeding the right wolf exactly feeding the positive wolf Yes. Little pieces at a time. Yeah, as small as they might be, you know, it might start off, and th this is how it started off, it might start off with a shower and brushing my hair and having five minutes of sunshine. Um, that's obviously now very much part of my day and I don't even think about it, but it was a necessary step to be able to get to the point now where I'm at where I have a monthly goals list and I have a six-monthly goals list that I review every few days and just check back in with myself. But it had to start with the granular stuff to get to this. Because if I'd started by saying, here's the monthly list, I wouldn't have got any of it done. Uh, because right. it just would have been too much to deal with. Just too overwhelming. One question I wanted to talk to you about that you had mentioned was just and I think so many people when they're struggling and they're struggling with change is that self-loathing that like what you said, that darkness, that depression and how we get kind of stuck there in that. And it just kind of feeds the desire for escape to anything, a behavior, a substance, whatever. Mm. Yeah. It's a self-perpetuating place to be really, because the, 
the, the bad wolf starts feeding itself really, you know, and gets yeah. stronger and is doing push-ups. Um, so it's a, it is a dangerous place and it does require a huge amount of courage to try and pull oneself out of that place. We're very, very fortunate in the recovery community as a whole that there's so much support in so many different forms. So, you know, if the courage is there to just try and reach out and step out of that dark place, um, there will always be someone there to help because the support is necessary, especially in those early stages. You know, trying to do this alone is a very, very, very challenging thing to do. So even if it's the the support of a friend or if it's someone from a, a sort of therapeutic or psychological background and, um, you know, that right. sort of thing, there will always be someone along the way because we need to walk this path together. Absolutely. I think so often when we're in that darkness, we feel like we can't reach out to anybody. We have to do it alone by ourselves. All the, the shame takes over. And that place is such a great place for that uh, dark wolf just to thrive in and just Mm. grow stronger and it gets harder and harder to reach out but you don't have to do it alone yeah absolutely and it's um in my case anyway it's not something that is an overnight thing you know okay i'll do these five things today and then i'll be absolutely brilliant from tomorrow onwards you know it's a transition and we have to in some ways hold space for that bad wolf and accept that some of those things like the shame are there there's going to be residue for a little or a long time but as we start feeding the good wolf those things get smaller and get removed eventually so talk about that patience that you you have to have as you as you make this shift as you start to i guess feed that positive side and i don't want to i don't know if i should starve the negative side is the right way to say it because like you said it's mm-hmm. still kind of a part of us but nurtured i guess i don't know that patience that takes part of that process because like you said it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight yeah it doesn't and it it's really hard you know it, it's a challenging process but it's not as hard as continuing in state of addiction and I think that you know as we feed that good wolf parts of that wolf include self-compassion so as we work through this huge spectrum of emotions during recovery where both wolves are you know pretty strong when we build up the strong wolf the things like self-compassion do get stronger so we're able to look at the other things in a slightly different way and the perspective changes there's a little bit more acceptance rather than the need or want to try and block them out and when we accept them we can it helps us move through them and move them away right yeah definitely and i think that's a i guess we're a little bit calmer when we start to move towards acceptance we're not so i guess agitated to get out of it get out of that pain, that shame, whatever. We can sit with it a little bit more patiently and uh, give it some compassion. Absolutely. And the practical side of doing all this work is the added benefits from doing that practical stuff. So, for example, journaling 
might tick off something from a list perspective and an achievement perspective, but there's actually also the release that one gets emotionally and mentally from the journaling as well. So there are huge benefits from adding all of these things into that, you know, new routine that then becomes the thriving routine that helps us in our recovery. So let's talk a little bit like if you saw someone who was out there struggling and you were going to create this thriving routine for them, what might be some of the things you would start to to put in it? So, you know, someone out there listening, they can really kind of go, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can do that. Hmm. So it's certainly something that's very different for each person and has to be tailored to a lifestyle so that it's achievable. Right. Because these things have to be realistic. And, you know, saying I'm going to go for a walk every day when it takes 20 minutes to get to somewhere to walk is right. you know, it's not going to be achievable. So um, it always has to be tailored to the lifestyle of the individual. And the biggest thing that I always encourage people to do is really start small because everything can always be added to. Like we were saying earlier, you know, small, start small and then grow on it. And also not to um, be hard on oneself if we fall off once here or there, as long as we get back on, that habit will continue forming and strengthening. So start small, build on it. Don't be worried if you fall off here, there or wherever. Make it easy. Make it irresistible, actually. You know, make it something that's really appealing to you as well. Right. And and something that's actually quite exciting. What might be a good example of something really small? Because I, I think a lot of times we, what I found for myself is I think something's, oh yeah, that's totally doable. I tend to overestimate. Yeah, that's totally doable. And then really resonant, I have to keep it like taking it back. No, no, no. It has to be really, really small. So mm. what might be an example of one of those small things someone might do just in, in the beginning of their day if they're starting this journey? So um, one thing could be a gratitude list of just five things. And this is where, this is a great example actually of building on something. So it can start off as five things that you think of in your own mind as you're lying in bed. That's it every day. And that's something that can then build. And after a week, you start saying, these are my five things and these are why I'm grateful for them. So you're adding something little onto them. The next stage of that might be to write them down in a journal and you've got them, you know, that's the next stage. And then the next stage after that would be to share them with someone else. So that's almost like a four weekly, you know, an example of how something can progress over four weeks. I think that's such a great example because it really shows how you just, you just have to start really small because sometimes I think when, if we're struggling with depression or anxiety or addiction, we're so overwhelmed that, that it's, it's hard to fit these little positive things in that, that can kind of start to feed the positive side of ourselves, feed that positive wolf. And I think that's just, it's a good example because it kind of shows you how you can build it, but you have to have that consistency and slowly over time, you're going to begin to, to feel better. You're, you're going to begin to make those changes. Absolutely. And the way that our brains are usually wired is um, to seek things, you know, routines, habits that give us a 
instant gratification. And we don't usually work hard for the ones that give us a long-term gratification until we start learning about the benefits. So if we can do something like a quick fight, something that takes one minute in the morning that can then build into something else, it's going to be much more resistible and have that instant gratification that our brains are actually looking for in early recovery because we're so used to getting it from alcohol or another substance. You know, I'm going through this quick fix, you know, so those quick fixes need to be still in place, but in healthier healthier ways right slowly start to, to to find ways to do it to get that i guess if you want to call it soothing or whatever to, mm. to be able to change it yeah and a lot of times yeah. alcohol drugs behaviors whatever it is work fast they work absolutely quick and, yeah really quick. destructive but quick yeah and often we've found we find ourselves in with this huge void of how to get these instant fixes which is where you know, this sort of transference of addiction can start happening in early recovery where we start getting hooked to our phones or social media or things like that because the instant gratification is so prevalent in those things. So if we can attune that to something like a gratitude practice that takes so little time, we can start seeing the benefits of the healthy ways to work on our recovery. And it's kind of like as you do that, it slowly starts to build. You just have to believe that it's going to build. And then, like you said earlier, reach out, get that support to help you through it. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to be alone. Mm. There are people out there like, like you that want to help and can help. Absolutely. Yeah. There are so many people who love to help others. You know, we've been, We've been in these incredibly dark places ourselves and been hauled out of those holes, those shame caves. And, you know, we see the value in how much it helps to have someone walk with us on that journey. So it's it's giving back, you know, it's yeah. really seeing how someone could benefit from that as well. Right. And it's so hard. You know, I, I think back of, of my own dark times in my life and, and when I take a step back, I can see that there were people around me who reached in to to pull me up. I may not have been able to recognize it at that time or see it in that way, but like your brother who, you know, kind of, he kind of reached into that dark space and pulled you out. Mm. Other people out there can can get that too that there there are people out there. Take the hand that's reaching in. Absolutely. And and that's also why I love the coaching space because it's um It's a really empowering way for people to find what is actually already inside themselves that they might not see yet because of the low self-esteem. So the coaching is is really an opportunity to help someone find those things. It's not guidance and advice and all of those. I mean, it's guidance. It's, It's not advice. It's not telling someone what to do. It's gently holding space for someone, safe space, so that they can grow and be empowered to grow and and in turn strengthen that that good wolf. Right. And with all of that compassion as as a part of it. Huge. Huge. Yes. Awesome. Thank you, Sophie, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind. My favorite question. Someone out there, maybe 
they're struggling. Uh, they know a loved one is struggling. What would you want to say to them if you could say one thing? Have the courage to take the first step, however small that might be for you. It might be looking in the mirror and telling yourself that you need to get help, or it might be making a phone call. It's different for us all, but have the courage to make that first step and everything else will, will fall in place. Awesome. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? How can they connect with you? So um, people can find me on my website, thewolfyfeed.com. I'm also on Instagram, the underscore wolfyfeed. So those are the two best places. Awesome. And once again, I will put all those in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com. Thank you, Sophie, so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom and your courage and all of that. Thanks so much for having me, Dwayne. I've absolutely loved it and uh, really enjoyed our conversation. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write us a review in iTunes. That really does help people find the podcast. And I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care, be safe, and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.